Welcome to A Farther Room. We are at a point in our country after two years where the evidence is crystal clear that our national public health response to this pandemic has been an abject failure. It's a failure on multiple levels. The United States has one of the highest death rates per capita from COVID of any developed nation in the world. There are many countries who are third world countries with much less resources than this country has who have done better than we have. This is unacceptable. It's unacceptable. There's nobody, nobody who can argue that. And I feel like one of our major problems is we have relied on people who have never treated a COVID patient to tell us how best to treat COVID patients. So what I have for you is a conversation with somebody who has treated COVID patients. And he's somebody who has a lot to say on the matter. Here's the interview for you starting now. Well, I'd like to introduce to you a special guest that I have with me today. Um, his name is John Witcher. He's a physician. And um, tell me if I have it right, but your background's mainly in emergency room and, and hospitalists. Is that correct? That's correct. And um, if you would just, if you would tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself and, and where you're from and um, the type, just a brief work history, if you would. Okay. Well, yeah, my name is Dr. John Witcher. I was uh, born and raised in Mississippi. My father was from Tupelo and my mother, Yazoo City. So that's where all my cousins are. And then I grew up on the Mississippi Gulf Coast in the Biloxi Ocean Springs area. Uh, went off to college. I got an electrical engineering degree, worked for a couple years, got married when I was young, 21. I had my first son early and when I started medical school when I was 25 and my son was I think two at the time. Wow. Uh, I had two more children while I was in medical school. So currently I have uh, three grown children. My oldest is 30 and I have a 27-year-old son and a 26-year-old daughter. My two younger ones are in medical school right now. My son just graduated from medical school. He's a family practitioner. He's studying. He's doing his residency at right there at Jackson at UMMC. My daughter is in her last year of medical school. She's going to be a psychiatrist. My oldest son is uh, married. He lives down in Pensacola. He's an orthodontist, and his wife's a pediatric dentist, and they have our first grandchild. She's nine months old, and they just notified me today that they're pregnant again, so and then wow. my daughter that's in medical school, her husband, uh, they get, she's been married a couple years and she is pregnant and going to have a baby in April, a little boy. So I'll have another grandchild. And then my, my middle son or my son, my younger son is, uh, he, he just got married this year and, uh, his wife says she wants six children. So 
I'm just just waiting for a bunch of grandchildren so I can spoil <laughs> them. And uh, yeah, my and my wife is Brooke, and uh, she is uh, she's not the biological mother to my children, but we've been married for about six years, known each other for about eight or nine. Uh, she has a son, a grown son that's uh, about 25, 26. He got, he uh, has a mechanical engineering degree from Mississippi State. He's out in uh, Arizona now, studying to get his PhD in robotics and mechanical engineering at the uh, uh, Arizona State University out here in Tempe, Arizona. Uh, so yeah, my wife, she's been in Mississippi. She was also she's originally she was born in Texas, raised in Pascagoula, Mississippi. She's been in, we currently live in, uh, right outside of Jackson in the Flowood area. She's been in that area for probably 25, 30 years. I've been in that area for uh, central Mississippi for, for about 20, 20 plus years. I, I came to Mississippi after I went to medical school at South Alabama Mobile, came to Mississippi in 95 and started an OBGYN residency at UMMC. Uh, did one year of that, year and a half, and then I started moonlighting out in the emergency rooms throughout rural Mississippi. Then uh, I, I uh, just basically did uh, started doing that full time. At that point, my children, I had my, uh, my oldest was, was in first grade and my other two were in diapers. And so I had to go out and I had lots of student loans to pay back. So I went out to the countryside and started working and actually worked for the uh, Choctaw tribe and uh, uh that right outside Philadelphia. Mississippi. Okay, yeah. Worked for them for several years to pay back my student loans. Then also worked in Sebastopol, Mississippi yeah. in, a, in a federally funded rural medical clinic to help pay back my student loans. And then I came uh, to the Flowood area. Uh, I guess that's been about uh, 15 years ago. And I still work. I've always worked out in the rural settings and in the hospital. I'm basically a, a uh, rural general practitioner where I specialize mostly in the ERs and uh, as a hospitalist. Work in these small hospitals where there's basically one doctor in the ER and two or three nurses. Mm-hmm. Worked at about uh, probably 12 or 15 different small hospitals throughout central Mississippi. A lot of times we rotate. You know, I might work at two or three different hospitals at a time. We rotate around. And so I worked everywhere from uh, my last uh, job was uh, in Yazoo City, Mississippi. I was the medical director there of the ER and the hospitals program. But I've also worked at Hazelhurst, McGee, uh, Philadelphia, uh, Kosciuszko, uh, let's see, where else? Waynesboro, just a whole lot of these little <laughs> towns. Same kind of deal. One, one, one doctor in the ER with several nurses and you see just about anything I've, I've learned over the years from, from these old doctors in these little towns that, uh, you know, been practicing in, in their 20, 30, 40 years. And, you know, they back in the day, not too many years ago, back uh, in the 80s, 70s, they delivered babies, did surgeries, they did everything. Mm-hmm. So these are the yep. kind of guys that trained me. You know, I was trained uh, early on by a Vietnam uh, trained Vietnam veteran trained surgeon down in Waynesboro, Dr. Young. He, uh, I worked with him. At, I was in the ER and he would come in and when we have a gunshot or a uh, stabbing or any kind of major trauma, we, we would take him to surgery there and uh, or he would and I, I would assist him. So did a whole lot of training like that in rural Mississippi. So 
this kind of, uh, you know, it's a unique situation. There's not too many doctors that certainly no doctors do that nowadays. I was one of the last few doctors 25 years ago that, that went out in, into the rural setting straight through, you know, just doing an, like an internship. These days, doctors, uh, just like my son, for example, he's he's going to go out to be a rural family practice doctor, but he'll he'll train in that specialty for three years before he goes out and does it. So, so little unique situation, but that's been me. I've been treating COVID since day one, out there in Yazoo, Mississippi. Uh, we treated uh, some of the very first uh, COVID patients in Mississippi. We put them in the hospital there, and, and I was treating treating them like like many other doctors around the country. We were giving them hydroxychloroquine. Uh, and uh, of course, then when Trump announced that he was taking it, uh, of course, it, uh, of course, then Dr. Fauci, it, you know, he he got some of his guys to do a, a bogus study that they put in the Lancet. Uh, it was 100% bogus. It's all lies, but it uh, it vilified hydroxychloroquine. They, pardon me. They retracted it later, didn't they? Yeah, they retracted the Lancet study. But, you know, it never did make uh, headline news. Uh, it, you know, the headline news still continues to say hydroxychloroquine doesn't work for COVID. And so anyway, so then the hospital there that I worked for, I worked for Baptist the Hospital. Uh, Yazoo City is owned by Baptist. And the mothership was out of Memphis. You know, Memphis bought Baptist Mississippi out about six years ago. So there's 24 Baptist hospitals, 11 of them in Mississippi, the rest in Tennessee and two in Arkansas. They're all, all owned by Memphis Baptist. So uh, I didn't work directly for the hospital. I worked for a company that uh, were, were a contract company that worked, you know, ER doctors and hospitalists work through this company. That's, that's the typical way that, that ER doctors and hospitalists work throughout America. This company mm -hmm. is a very, very large company. It's in all 48 states, has about 70,000 providers that work for it. So I, I'm, I work through that corporation. And uh, anyway, the, uh, uh, so that's how that went along. Uh, that Lemdesivir came out, right? And uh, mm -hmm. that was put on the hospital protocol. And so that was the medication I was forced to use by, by the hospital, as well as the pharmacy board of the hospital. Uh, was not real happy with that, but uh, you know, uh, we 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 did we don't have an ICU unit in Yazoo City, so if they become uh, where they need to be put on the ventilator, then we basically put them on the ventil a portable ventilator there, and then we transfer them to a larger facility. Mm -hmm. uh, some patients we had to do that. Uh, uh, many patients, you know, I was able to to uh, still treat them, and, and they did fairly well, even even despite being on remdesivir. And, and one reason for that is we put everybody on, on blood thinners. We didn't really know at the time, but that, that was probably what kept many people, uh, what, what healed them really. So uh, fast forward, as things went along, I, I, got, I was against mandating the vaccines. I felt like you know, people needed to know the risk involved before they uh, took the vaccine. So I started talking about that around the hospital and just, just you know, they wanted all the employees to get vaccinated. Many of us did not. Uh, many of us doctors and, uh, and uh, nurses and other, uh, we had about 30% in the hospital that got vaccinated voluntarily. And then they came out and mandated, said by October 29th, all, everybody in the hospital had to be vaccinated. They'd be fired. Mm -hmm. so of course, we got on the bandwagon. We started organizing Mississippi against mandates, started going out, folks, having marches, we called them uh, marches, but 
But really, I guess, protests. We, we, our first one was in front of Baptist Hospital in Oxford. Then we went to Columbus, had a couple over there. Then we scheduled one for Tupelo. Then we had some on the coast. And we had a big one in Jackson out there beside the, uh, the uh, governor's mansion. And, uh, and then we brought Dr. Peter McCullough to town. We yep. brought him to Jackson, to the Hilton. We had about five people there. Yeah, you were there, Joshua. And so I know I'm talking a lot, but just giving you kind of an update. So this is kind of where we where we were. Uh, and finally, you know, after meeting Dr. Peter McCullough and networking with him and becoming friends with him and really studying his uh, Peter McCullough early uh, protocol, early multi-drug therapy protocol for COVID, and, and then and networking with doctors around Mississippi that were using these protocols. Okay, that they weren't using them so much in the hospital, or, they, or really none that I knew of. I, learned, I found out later that there were, there's a, a Greenville Hospital, they're actually using that, some of that protocol there. There's a few doctors scattered around Mississippi that can be, that have kind of snuck it into the hospital. Well, not really snuck it, but they're able, since it's like a very small hospital setting, they're able to get the pharmacy and administration to use drugs such as ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and others. Um, so didn't know that at the time, but there was many doctors out in the rural settings, uh, and not just rural settings, but but private, you know, out doctors that are, are family practice, general practice doctors that have been able to prescribe ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. They've had to find pharmacies that were willing to uh, to uh, give it because some pharmacists pharmacists said refused to give uh, to let the doc, even though the doctors prescribed it, the pharmacist said no, we're not giving it for COVID. Uh, hydroxychloroquine, for example, is a very, very common drug. It's Plaquenil, trade name Plaquenil, given yeah. to hundreds and hundreds of patients with rheumatoid arthritis every day for year after year, day after day, been used, very safe and effective. Uh, but the pharmacist said, no, if you write it for COVID, we're not giving it. Okay, doctors use off-label medications or use medications for off-label reasons probably 30% of the time. It's never been a problem in the past. Ivermectin is used worldwide. Billions and billions of doses have been given over the last decades. Uh, very, very safe, very inexpensive drug. It's been used for parasites worldwide. Okay, so but it can be used off-label and it's a very, very good antiviral as well as anti-inflammatory as well as several other mechanisms. It's good in COVID both early, mid, and late. And there's no doubt about it. There's uh, 70 studies all over the world. Even the NIH has it on its website as a drug that can be used for COVID, but yet somehow it's gotten vilified. And uh, so anyway, that's come early December. I said, you know what? We had a lull, right? Delta had come through, didn't have any more patients in the hospital at that time with COVID. But I said, if you know, because at that time we didn't know if there was going to be another variant. We heard about this Omicron in South mm -hmm. Africa and other places. And I said, you know, I uh, said to, you know, basically I prayed about it. I said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm a doctor. I always want to put patients first. My first and foremost thing is to do no harm. I want to do all the good I can for my patients. And uh, so I said, you know, when, when uh, and I had done, uh, also looked at the FLCCC protocol, Math Plus protocol, Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Paul Merrick, both are physicians uh, that have co-founded that. And so it's I was, really good, uh, I said, it? you know, I'm going to use this math plus protocol on the next COVID patients I have in the hospital because number mm -hmm. one, I think it works. Number two, I can watch them in the hospital setting, be very, uh, be in a very controlled environment because I had never prescribed ivermectin to anyone up to that point. 
and the hydroxychloroquine I had prescribed uh, to anybody other than inpatients, and, uh, and that that was uh, had had uh, been stopped early on. So I was going to do the Math Plus protocol. So I, I got three patients in the hospital early December with COVID. And I went to the pharmacist and told him what I was doing. We have a pharmacist there at the hospital. He said, well, no, I can't do that. You know, we, first of all, we don't have ivermectin here at the hospital. So I said, well, that'd be all right. So I went ahead and did, I took them off remdesivir, put them on higher dose steroids, and I put them, uh, uh, tweaked a few other things. And then I, I called a local pharmacist and I ordered uh, ivermectin doses for these three patients for five days. Pharmacist delivered them to me in a bag with bottles for each patient. So I was in the ER working all day. And uh, that afternoon at seven, when I got done in the ER, I, I walked down the hall to see these patients again, which I had seen them that morning. But I was going to discuss with each patient ivermectin, the benefits, the risk, of what I felt was the best for them. And, and if they said okay, I was going to give it to them. I, I didn't need, I was just going to, you know, I, I can give medicines just as well as the nurses. So I wanted to take the hospital out of, out of any liability, any problems. But as I was walking down to, to talk with these patients, I got a phone call from this company I worked with, which is the medical director of the state. And he worked in, he's my direct uh, uh, person I communicate with. He called me and said, hey, hey, doc, the higher ups at Baptist in Memphis, uh, they said, uh, the, you know, uh, they said they don't need you anymore. So they terminated me on the spot. Wouldn't really give me a reason other than he said they just had enough. And I assumed that it was from all the uh, mandates. You know, we, we ended up pushing Baptist to give us all exemptions from the vaccines. Many of us got religious exemptions. Quite a few of us, including myself, we got we got the Baptist hospital to recognize natural immunity. I mean, I've been face wow. to face against with COVID since day one. I literally, I mean, right on it. I've never gotten COVID. I didn't even get Omicron. So I have what you call innate immunity. Coronaviruses have been with us for decades. I probably was exposed to the COVID-1 virus in the early 2000s. Yeah. And I have innate immunity probably for a lifetime. And so I can't get any variant of, of COVID or coronavirus, including the COVID-2 variant. So that's what it appears. I'm in that category. I think there's many other healthcare workers in that category that have been working for a long time around, around these coronaviruses. So so anyway, that, that's fast forward. I, I was terminated early December from Baptist Hospital. And, and from that time, that, that day I started, I, I made my first home visit to, a, to one of my nurses that work in the ER with me there at Yazoo. She had COVID, mm -hmm. gave her ivermectin as well as some other early interventions, Peter Monk color protocol. She got well immediately. And then I just went from there. I started making house calls, started treating patients, uh, uh, at my house, even I have a home office. They came to my house uh, if, if they were stable enough. Otherwise, I'd go to their house, and so that's what I started doing. And, and that's I've had I've had tremendous, tremendous success with these protocols. And that's what I'm doing right here. I've treated some very ill patients at home. They have to have oxygen, uh, but I use a combination of the Math Plus protocol and the Peter McCullough protocol with miraculous results. And so that's that, that's pretty. That's I've caught you up to date. So I'm gonna let you go ahead, Josh. You you, you asked me some good questions. I talk, I don't normally talk that much, but I I had a lot to talk about there. You know the the thing about this topic is I feel like we could sit here and talk for days and not scratch the surface. That it's just been 
this crazy reality, alternate reality we've been living in for the past couple of years. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is um, I've only met you real briefly once, and then I was a patient of yours, but you strike me as a man on a mission. You strike me as somebody who, and you can tell me, I want to turn it back over to you, but you can tell me how accurate this is. You, I feel like that you look at this current situation and you feel like that patients in, the, in Mississippi and also other places are, have been underserved and that they're being undertreated. And it's because people are just, they're relying on the three letter organizations to tell them what to do. And frankly, what, what we have been doing is not working. And, and I know you agree with that, but why do you think people are having such a hard time you know, coming to grips with the United States public health response to COVID has been an absolute abysmal failure. Yeah, that's a good question, Joshua. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm a doctor. I mean, my first foremost thing is always to take care of patients. You know, put patients first, their care first. That, that's, that's just what I do, you know? And so uh, when COVID came along, and, uh, you know, the, the uh, <clears throat> I mean, just like taking hydroxychloroquine away, that made no sense. And then masking everybody up and isolating them, that made no sense. Okay. And and just on and on. The, the vaccines, they came out, you know, they were supposed to be, I mean, they came out, I mean, anything that, I've, I've not trusted pharmaceutical companies for decades. And any doctor uh, that will tell you the truth, they don't trust them either because they have a track record of, of harming patients. And that's just a fact. Look at the yeah. opioid crisis. Uh, yeah. It goes on and on. So, so first of all, I mean, what I've done for decades is stand between my patient's care and, and, the, and the pharmaceutical company. They will lie to, to you and they will harm you. Okay. There's commercials they put on TV. Patients come and they say, doc, I want to be on this medicine. It looks like it's great. Well, let's talk about that medicine. It, it has a risk associated with it. Maybe you don't need to be on it. So that's yeah. part of my job. That's that's what I do as a physician. I protect the patient's uh, care. Sometimes I have to protect them from them, their own selves. You know, I'm, it's like a parent and a child. I mean, you don't you don't just tell a child. You know, it's not about just making them happy. It's about you care for them, and that's what physicians do. They uh, you have to care for the patients, uh, do what's best for for the, for them and their health. And so uh, so yeah. So I mean, when these vaccines were were put on this. Uh, <laughs> timeline to come out that quick. I'm like, well, that doesn't even make sense. You, you can't get a vaccine up to the market that quick. I want to see the studies. I, I want to see the, you know, what kind of research have they done? And the more I looked at it, the less they had done. And so I was very skeptical. At, uh, and so when they came out with them and then all I heard Dr. Dobbs and our Mississippi State Health Department doing was pushing these vaccines is, is the only way we we're going to beat this pandemic. Okay, yeah. flatten the curve. We got to get the, this is these vaccines are, are safe, effective, and free. Okay, they never mentioned any risk. Okay, that's that's red flags going up all over the place. I'm like, wait a minute, you're supposed to be uh, protecting the, the public, uh, the, our health, and Mississippi that the, their public health is your number one criteria, but yet you're not even telling them there's risk involved with these vaccines. That makes no sense. Yeah. So yeah, I, I became very concerned. 
And so, um, and then the further you look into it, well, I mean, it's, you know, uh, Biden sends the White House COVID response team doctor down to Mississippi, flies him down. He, he gets together with, with our, our, our uh, health department and our academic positions at UMMC. And then they're all on board pushing the vaccines as safe, effective, and free. And even to the point that they're FDA approved, and they're not. They're still not. That's the right. FDA authorized for an emergency situation. So no one's responsible. When you get the vaccine, you're taking it at your own risk. No one's responsible but you. If you get hurt, you can't, there's, you can't go to the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and, and the government has a little program that you can sign up on. But if you think that, you know, you think you're going to get somewhere there, I mean, look at this, this research that a little bit and see how that, that's been in the past. So anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah, they, you know, uh, and I'm just going to interject this real quick um, because a lot of people are going to um, flap their arms and accuse you of misinformation. But a lot of people still don't realize that the vaccines that we have available in the United States are still under EUA. They're not approved. And that's a point you just made. But most people just know what they've heard and what they've heard over and over again is that they're fully approved, fully approved, fully approved. And they did this weird split thing, didn't they, where the, the branded product, which is called Comirnaty or something like that, which is the dumbest name for any drug I've ever heard. It's, it's approved, but there's none of that. I don't even know if they've made any. There's probably some in Europe and maybe a little bit in Australia, but we don't have any here in the United States. That's, that's absolutely correct, Josh. Cominarty, it stands, it's an acronym for Community Unity with MRA in, in the middle. Uh, and it's, uh, it's Cominarty. It's, it's out of uh, Germany. It's biotech. It's a, it's a uh, kind of a daughter company of Pfizer. It was approved over there if they do X, Y, and Z. Okay, right. so it's like pre-approved if you do these things. Well, then they did a bait and switch. They said, well, okay, well, since the Pfizer vaccine has the same uh, ingredients, which we don't know that for sure, then we can just kind of do a bait and switch. And for advertisement reasons, we can we can kind of <clears throat> say that uh, the Pfizer vaccine is FDA approved. Okay, but it, it absolutely not. And I can tell you, this is how you can prove it. Whenever you go get the vaccine, just ask them, say, can I, can I see the, the uh, legal documents that I'm supposed to be given when I take this vaccine? Mm -hmm. And you'll see if it's a child vaccine, age 5 to 11, uh, I can tell you for sure uh, that it's a seven-page document. And every page outlines how Pfizer is not liable for anything that happens to you, okay? In other words, it's experimental. You're taking it at your own risk. So it's a fact. There's absolutely 100%, like Josh says, nobody's getting the FDA-approved vaccine in the United States. You know, one of the earliest things, you know, at first, really early in the pandemic, especially the first year, like during 2020, you know, working at, working at my job, you know, at, as a pharmacist, I, I'm around a lot of really smart, really educated people who, as I'm sure you are as well, around hospitals. Everybody is really good at what they do. They, they, they have a really high intelligence to get to where they are. And I was around a lot of people who really drank the Kool-Aid from public health. And I did as well for the first, most of 2020. 
But one of the earliest things that really, it really got me started down a path away from public health and just thinking that it was an, an entire just total debacle was in January, they were the, the CDC and Pfizer both were pushing pregnant females to go get the new vaccines. And they, as you know, were excluded from clinical trials. They were not, there was nobody pregnant who received these medications while they were being studied in clinical trials. And it's, it seemed to me like just such an insane departure from just the norm, you know, the normal safety protocols that you would follow for a new product. You know, Dr. So-and-so of the So-and-so Institute said it was okay, so I'm going to go get it. And there were so many pregnant women that were pressured to get it by their doctors. And I feel like we just, we still don't have a really, a really good grasp on the the outcome of that, you know. Um, And I just felt like we're creating this new list of rules that never existed before. And one of them is, it's okay for us to push pregnant women to go receive a product that it wasn't studied for them in. And yeah, after, I, after yeah, that point, ahead. I was done. I was, I was done with it. And every, everything since then, you know, um, is just, I, it's just a head scratcher for me. Nothing makes sense. Yeah, Josh, this was the first uh, line in the sand, so to speak, that was drawn for me as well. It, in early, it was about September the 9th, I believe, that Dr. Dobbs put out a memo, and it said uh, several things, but the one-liner, he said that uh, the COVID-19 vaccines are safe during pregnancy and lactation, period. That's what he put in this memo, this memo that he's encouraging all pregnant women to get vaccinated, okay? Well, there, like you said, there's been no adequate studies on that. All right. And, and always, always, just as, as Josh as a pharmacist and, and me as a physician, we, we know you don't I mean, you very, very limit what you give pregnant patients. OK, you, you that's just something we've always done. We, we don't give them certain medications um, because they're pregnant. We don't want to injure them. Right. And if they don't need a medication, we don't give it to them. And you, we yeah. certainly don't give them a medicine that's experimental a treatment that's experimental and there's uh, been absolutely no history on. Uh, so plus the, I mean, the research I did showed that these vaccines very likely uh, could interfere with the fetus and uh, cause fetal demise. And it was even has been reported. And, and I have uh, at this point when we've uh, uh, grouped together Mississippi against mandates. We have, we started out with just a couple of us doctors. We have 20 or 30 doctors around Mississippi now. We have two OBGYN doctors that are in our group, and they have been uh, OBGYNs for decades in, in Mississippi. And they have both reported it, uh, separately to me that they have never seen so many babies that have died in the womb before birth than they have in this last uh, in 2021. OK, that's that's. I mean, that speaks volumes to me because that's the same thing myself and other doctors have seen with these vaccines. It's one thing to look at the VAERS and see, see these numbers of, 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 of over a million now reported adverse events. I think 30,000 or so reported deaths 
over probably 30, 40,000 di uh, permanently disabled. It's one thing to read those numbers, but when you start seeing them show up at your clinic, your ER, your hospitals, and, and you see these injuries with your own two eyes, it, it, you mm -hmm. can't deny them. And so we started seeing that as well, uh, uh, middle of 21. And so that also uh, raised many, many red flags for me. And I got very concerned. And so when Dobbs put this information out, yeah, my head almost exploded because I, I said, there, there's just no way. And uh, so he, he based this, you know, what he, what he fell back on was the American College of OBGYN. They actually promoted that as well. Okay. And that's where Dr. Dobbs falls back on. So you say, well, wait a minute. This is American College of OBGYN. If they promote it, it's got to be good. Yeah. Well, who 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 does the American Academy of OBGYN fall under? It falls under the AMA, as all board certifications do. And here lies one of the major problems, that American Medical Association has been hijacked, and it is nothing more than a lobbyist group. Big Pharma has bought them out, and they're going to push whatever big farmer tells them to push. You know, I, I want to be conscious of your time, Dr. Witcher, but I have just a couple more things to ask you about if you have time. Yeah, yeah, I got time. Um, you know, after you founded the organization, uh, Mississippi Against Mandates, and you had, what, what made me aware of it was when I saw the advertisements for uh, McCullough speech at the Hilton. And um, I got pretty excited about that. And I went and he gave a really good, um, a really good speech there. And I thought there was a good turnout for it. Um, since then, you gave some, you gave some updates about the organization as well. But you went to um, Washington, did you not to the Lincoln? Yeah, yeah, I did. I was, um, I was invited to go to Nashville first with the COVID uh, care doctors. Dr. Robert Malone was there, Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Paul Merrick, Dr. Urso, uh, as well as some other doctors. And I got to meet all those and, and sit, sit and talk with them. And, um, and so from there, I was invited to go to Washington with them. And uh, there was a, a group, the uh, Unity Project, which is uh, Dr. Robert Malone's president of that group. And then you have the uh, Vaccine Safety Research Organization. That's not the exact name, but Dr. Or Steve Kirsch. He's the guy that invented the uh, the uh, optic mouse, the infrared mouse. Mm -hmm. uh, he's the one that said he'd give out a million dollars to whoever could uh, prove or, or disprove, I guess, uh, Fauci's maybe gain of function research, something he put out. Nobody could ever come up with it. But anyway, he's... He's uh he's uh he was part of that org uh, organizing that defeat the mandates Washington event. Also had the COVID team doctors, Dr. Robert Malone, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, and uh, many of these other doctors, Dr. Urso, and et cetera. And then of course Robert Kennedy was there, uh, Jr., which he's the mm -hmm. uh, Children's Defense Fund Foundation leader there, and so. Had a, a very large turnout. There was probably forty or fifty thousand people there. Of course, it didn't make any headline news because, I mean, that's what the the, the media does. They they want to downplay this. But we had a very good turnout. Had a lot of good information. That was on a Sunday, and then on Monday we had another Senator Ron Johnson hearing. It was called uh, the COVID Second Opinion. 
uh, many of the same doctors there, some nurses there. We had a vaccine injured there. Uh, you know, had and, and we also I, I met with that group. It's react19.org. Uh, uh, Brianne Dressen and Dr. Joel co-founded that group. There's a 12,000 members as of when we met in Washington D.C. They have 12,000 people that have joined them all over the United States that have been vaccine injured. Okay, so I'm I'm with that group and I'm helping the vaccine injured. Uh, with uh, to help them recover, we're really doing studies because we don't really know. Yeah. You know I mean, it's kind of like long haul COVID and vaccine injury is very similar problems. It's mm -hmm. spike proteins that cause this inflammation. It crosses the blood brain barrier. You get a lot of neurological problems, blood clots, myocarditis, Guillain-Barre, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yeah, that's where we're at. And then we're planning to have a California uh, defeat the mandate. Uh, event March the 5th. Same folks. We're going to be out there in Southern California. We don't know the exact location yet. Have that on the 5th. And I think on the 6th or 7th, we're going to send off the convoy. It's going to leave uh, California, go down I-10, uh, come up 49 through Mississippi, and then jut up through and be in Washington, D.C. for the convoy. Uh, and so uh, that's, 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 that's a big event. On the, on the schedule. Well, I, I have just one more question to ask you. Um, yeah. You know, I'm somebody who tries to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I know that there are, there are a lot of, there are a lot of providers in the country right now who they, they rationalize what we're doing right now, as far as how to treat patients um, outside the hospital and also how to treat hospitalized patients. And they get their piddly dexamethasone six milligrams once a day. And they might get uh, remdesivir if they, um, in the may, they may not. Um, I have a family member, an extended family, family member who's been in the hospital for five weeks. And that's all he's gotten the entire time he's been there is just decks one time a day. And there are people who try to rationalize this by, well, we can't give these other meds because we don't, you know, in order to really tell if something works, you have to do it in a controlled way where you have a controlled group and you have a, a study group and all this type of thing. And I've just felt like for the longest time that, in, I feel like it's the wrong time to try to do clinical trials on this type of thing, because in the meantime, you have patients who are declining on standard of care. You know, the NIH way of doing things has not worked, but you have so many physicians who are, you know, I'm sure you've had plenty of colleagues who just, they won't use one drug or another and they rationalize it by, well, this is what I'm told works. So if, if you could give a message to, if there are, you know, nurse pracs or uh, physicians out there that hear this, that have basically just either sent home people who are outpatient monoclonal antibodies, if it's available, but if not, you know, go home, come back if you feel bad, um, if you had, if you could give a message to, 
other providers who are on the fence about trying different methods or different medications, what would you tell them? Well, what I tell them, if, if you're a physician and you want, want and you're taking care of acute COVID patients right now, which is kind of slowing down, but they're still out there. I'm taking care of them daily right now. I would, I would suggest you can go, a, a physician uh, can take care of COVID patients in all 50 states right now through telehealth. Okay. That's, that's been an, enacted and it's, uh, and it's still uh, ongoing. And so if you want to see patients in all 50 states and help COVID patients, then I would suggest you go to My Free Doctor. And uh, it's uh, Dr. Ben Marble founded that company. He's still with the company. It's, uh, it's basically a telehealth group. You, you can go up, sign up. If you, uh, you can get in touch with me directly. You can go to, uh, you can email me or just go to, you go to, I have a website, drjohnmd.org. You can email me through there or get in touch with me, and I can I can get you touch in touch with Dr. Ben Marble directly, and uh, you can sign up there and see start seeing patients through telehealth. And we use early intervention protocols. We use the Peter McCullough protocol and also combination FLCCC, but we use steroids, we use blood thinners, we use budesonide breathing treatments, we use hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. Uh, other, we use cochazine. We use use a lot of different medications, just just like the Peter uh, McCullough protocol, early intervention as well as uh, uh, FLCCC guys. It's it's a combination of both, and, uh, and and we could treat patients like that. And and the other thing, and if you're a nurse, I would encourage you to go to American Frontline Nurses. Uh, once again, you can get in contact with me directly through my website. And I can connect you with the founder, Nicole. Uh, she, she can get you set up as a nurse because we need nurses all over the United States. What we're doing, uh, just like right now, I'm getting distress calls from people all over the United States. And uh, they're in the hospital or they're about to go in the hospital. And, and what we're doing is we're, we're treating them at home with oxygen. It, it's a, it, you have to, it's a, a lot of times you can't go through insurance because they take too long. So you have to end up renting the machines outright, or even buying them. You can buy them online. You still have to have a, a doctor's prescription even to buy them online, but you can get these home oxygen concentrators uh, 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 sent to you like overnight even. So so that's important. We get, You have to be on oxygen when, uh, you know, even Omicron, most people do fine. You know, most, a lot of people, it's a cold. My eighth month, eight month old granddaughter got COVID and she had it for 20, probably less than 24 hours. She had a runny nose. My wife got Omicron, about two days worth, and that's the majority of people. It's like a like a cold, maybe maybe like a little flu. But then you have a, a category of people that at eight at the eighth day, if you're not over COVID, then you're in a phase where where the inflammation and microemboli are, are all over, but particularly in the lungs. So that's where you, you start having some drop in your O2 saturation, and you need some people just need a little oxygen, some people need a lot. Depends mm-hmm. on how early they got on these these uh, medications, but that's what we're doing. People are, are, you know, I'm trying to get people home out of the hospital. I've had several patients not make it that have that have died. I've had others that have made it. I still have I have some now. They're still in the hospital and and working through uh, through American Frontline Nurses and sometimes not, but but I have one patient up in Wisconsin right now that uh, a frontline nurse is. is She's actually manning him in the hospital. She works in that hospital. 
she's actually able to give him some of these early intervention medicines. He's not been able to make it home yet because he's, he is requiring a little more oxygen than we can get at his house right now. Uh, long story there, but uh, but anyway, he's uh, progressing. So it, it it's uh, the people are still they need help, and you can go as a physician. You can go to my free doctor, sign up, and help these patients in all 50 states. You only need one medical license in one state. Uh, same way with nurses, you can go to American Frontline Nurses and Network, and uh, and that, that's what I would recommend. Well, I, I feel like, you know, in five years, we're going to look back and realize that most of what we did as a country was just completely opposite of what we should have done. And the, the, the small consolation that I take is people like yourself and people um, who really are, will, are willing to think outside the box and people who are willing to do something instead of standing there with their arms folded. And um, I really appreciate you and I, I appreciate everything you've been doing. And um, I really thank you for coming on and talking to us today. Yeah, thank you, Josh. Thanks for inviting me. I, I'm so glad to, to meet you uh, at, the, at our rally as well as be, be, be able to treat you. And uh, so just uh, thank you for inviting me on your show here. And, and it is like Josh said, you know, why are these protocols being used all over in you know, all these hospitals? And, and I'm talking with folks in, all over in, in multiple states, and they're all using six milligrams of de dexamethasone, which is a baby <laughs> dose, which is an odd dose, which is, but it's everywhere because they're following the same old protocol, the Desivere and six milligrams of dexamethasone. But it is like Josh is saying, they're starting to back off the Desivere, but I mean, it's, it's, it's two years too late. They yeah. should have done that way, way before now. But, you know, they're taking the remdesivir. Now, instead of giving monoclonal antibodies, they're giving three days of IV uh, remdesivir. You know, you have to ask yourself, why in the world are they doing that? Uh, you know, it might be because there's a, a large stock of it that Fauci has. And, you know, he has a, he has a direct uh, benefit to, to getting that stuff out. I don't know. But, but uh, bottom line is all these hospitals are following Dr. Fauci's protocols. And the reason being is because the administrators make uh, money off of it. They force yeah. the doctors to do what they want to do, what the administrators want. And the doctors are bad. They're, they're, if they're not employees, they're contracted and they can be terminated if they don't, if, if the administrator wants them terminated. So unfortunately, most of these doctors are just like most everybody else. They, they need an income. They got mortgages to pay, kids to put through college, et cetera. Yeah. So thank you, Josh, for bringing me on. And, and uh, thank you for letting me talk.